It's good to be back with you this morning. Church, I had a whole joke planned where I was going to act like I was preaching from Genesis chapter 4 just to mess with my mom because you printed the bulletins. Um, But I'm not going to do that. I guess I'll do, there's been too many songs that directly relate to our passage today um, that I don't really think that would have stuck. So uh, Revelation chapter 4 Uh, We're going to continue today in a series that Pastor Brian started two weeks ago and that Nathan continued last week thinking about worship. But before we get going today, and as you all flip to Revelation chapter 4, I was reminiscing uh, while I was writing this sermon, thinking in how last week Nathan preached his first sermon ever. I was thinking about my first sermon ever, which was here just about 10 years ago this year, this fall, which it seems like it's been a long time, but also a very short time since that happened. And Nathan, I wanted to encourage you a little bit, because in my first sermon ever, when I came here and preached, I didn't preach on worship and from the Psalms. I decided, let's pick an easy verse, like Hebrews chapter 6, the warning passage, where it's like, you can't be restored to repentance if um, you don't have solid food. That easy passage that everybody understands. It's really great for a young preacher to preach through. That's the sermon that that I preached my first time. And I got up here and I was all excited and I had all these notes and I'd done all this study and I say everything I have to say and I look down at my watch and it's been about 12 minutes. So I'm like, okay, what do we do? We're learning on the fly up here. So I did what any good preacher would do. I started over, said everything a little bit differently and then got everybody out in about 20 minutes. So it was, um, it was a that was my, my first attempt uh, at a sermon, uh, and I think that's actually the reason why I keep being brought back, is because the hope that I would do another 20-minute sermon, because I think that was probably the first and only time that a Baptist beat a Methodist to the rose for lunch. So, I mean, we'll just, we'll just leave it there. But Revelation chapter, uh, chapter 4 is our passage this morning, and what we're going to see in our passage is we're going to really try to address a different part of the question of worship. So in Pastor Brian's first message, he asked the question, what is worship? What is it composed of? What is the nature of worship? And and Brian said this, he defined worship in the following way. He said, worship is placing supreme value on God. That's what Brian said. Worship is placing supreme value on on God. So in Brian's sermon, he showed God is supremely valuable. And in this sense, to worship is to rightly ascribe God's worth back to himself. Is to rightly ascribe what's true about God to himself. It's not that we give him anything or we add anything to him, but we are recognizing who God rightly is. So that was what Brian talked about in his sermon on what is worship. And then Nathan's sermon last week, I didn't have the chance to listen to it because there was an issue with the audio, but in the notes that he sent me, um, it seemed that what the content of his sermon was, was addressing the question, who do we worship? So if worship is placing supreme value on God, who is God? And Nathan described God's character and concluded that we worship the creator, the sustainer, the God of order, and the source of all life. So that's kind of where we've been the past two weeks as you've been thinking through worship, a concept that you'll be talking about all summer. And there's going to be a lot of overlap between what I say this morning and between what Pastor Brian and what Pastor Nathan have said in the previous two weeks. But today we're going to focus in on the question, why? So if we've seen the what and we've seen the who, today we're going to think about the why. Why do we worship? 
So let's read Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Oh, I believe it's customary for everyone to stand. Sorry. Please rise. Revelation 4, 1 through 11. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must, play, must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was at it, as it, and before the throne there was at it, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, all full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will, they existed and were created. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you that today we can take a moment to think about who you are and why it is we worship you. I pray that today, as we go through this passage, our eyes would be opened and lifted up to a bigger picture of who you are that we would have a more appropriate understanding of your character and a more appropriate understanding of why it is we worship you. We ask these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So before we begin walking through uh, this passage, uh, I want to kind of clarify something. Jennifer, this is, this is actually for me. Okay, cool. Make sure it wasn't actually pond water. I pulled up pranks on my mom. She could have told Jennifer at the prison, hey, actually put a little pond water in there. I, I probably would have. But I want to clarify a little bit today about exactly what I want to look at when we think about why we worship. So if we've seen that God is supremely valuable and that's what worship is, is ascribing that value to him. And we've seen that God is the source of all life, that he's our creator and sustainer. There's going to be a lot of overlap between the what, the who, and the why of worship. There's going to be a lot of overlap because really we worship. Why do we worship? Because he's God. We worship because that's who he is. He is the greatest being. He is maximally great. And it's impossible to even conceive of somebody who might be greater. So, of course, in one sense, as Christians, when we think, why do we worship? It's because he's God. 
He is the creator of all things. He is outside of time. But in another sense, I don't think it's any secret that everybody, and I think Brian might have touched on this, I don't think it's a secret that everybody worships something. Whether they're religious or irreligious, whether they're Christian or atheist or wherever they fit on the spectrum, everybody worships something, whether it's God, ourselves, money, a spouse, our kids, intimacy, a political party, a sports team, everybody worships something. Everybody fixes their eyes on something and places supreme value to it. They fix their eyes somewhere and onto something ultimate, even if it's not God. So in this sense, we worship because it's inherent to being human. And to worship rightly is to worship God. And that's what Pastor Brian and Pastor Nathan have shown in the past few weeks. But look at what our society today worships. If you were to look at the world today and ask the question, what is everybody worshiping? Well, most people in Western society, they're worshiping their individual autonomy. It's themselves. Nobody can tell me what to do. Nobody can tell me what I can and can't do with my life or my money or my car or my body. It's all mine, and nobody can tell me what to do with it. That's what the West worships. Part of what it means to be human is to inherently worship something. And to do that rightly isn't to worship ourselves. It isn't to worship our kids or our family or our spouse. It's to worship God. But why do we worship Christians worship because he's God. But I want to get a little more specific today. I want to get a little more directed at what I want to think about as we think through why we worship. I want to ask this question. What is it about God that necessitates worship? What is it about God that necessitates worship? And to answer this question, we're going to look at two categories related to God. This first one's going to sound complicated, and the second one after the songs we've sang today, I think it's going to make a whole lot of sense. The first one is this. He is holy other. Not holy as in H-O-L-Y, but holy as in W-H-O-L-L-Y. He is completely other. He is not like us. We're going to talk about that today. You might have some questions raising in your mind. Oh, how is God not like us in the person of Jesus? We'll talk about that. He's holy other. He's completely other. He's not like us. And the second thing is, he's utterly holy, completely holy, pure. So those are the two things we're going to look at today through our passage. So go back to your Bibles, Revelation 4. We're going to, so how I'm going to do this is we're going to look at this passage in three big chunks, and we're going to work through it, and hopefully in these three big chunks, see exactly what I mean when I say God is holy other, and he's utterly holy. So verse one through the first part of verse six. So verses uh, one through six a. After this, I looked. Now pause. I'm not gonna do this throughout the whole thing, but pause right here. After this, I looked. What we see here in the book of Revelation chapter four, there's three prior chapters to our passage today. The first chapter introduces this idea that the apostle John is receiving this revelation the real word is apocalypse. We say, that to us, that sounds like the end times, but apocalypse really just means to reveal. It means something is being revealed. Something unknown is being revealed. And so it's this revelation of Jesus Christ, this apocalypse of Jesus Christ to the apostle John. And the, uh, chapter one introduces that. Then chapters two and three, what you've probably, you might be familiar with, are the seven letters 
to the seven churches, where we see the church of Thyatira, we see uh, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. They all get addressed for issues that have been arising in the church. They all get addressed for some of the sins that they had in the church. It's really only one church that doesn't get accused of some grotesque sin. But there's these letters that are written to the church that are essentially calls for those churches to focus their eyes back on Jesus. Say, in the case of the Ephesian church, you've lost your first love. Look back to Jesus. Right? So chapters 2 and 3 really focus on these letters to the seven churches. And then chapter 4, we get this throne room vision. So we see an introduction, seven letters, and then boom, next thing that happens, throne room vision. So verses 4, 1 through 6 say, After this I looked, and behold, the door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will at once show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne there were 24 elders, or there were 24 thrones, and seated on those thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings of, and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was at it, before the throne there was at it a sea of glass like crystal. So look at this throne room scene. There's one on the throne with an appearance of amber, that's what jasper and carnelian, they're kind of like an amber color, like a, like a brownish, goldish amber color. Surrounded by an emerald rainbow, seated around the enthroned one, 24 more people on thrones, dressed in white. The throne itself flashed with lightning, peeled with thunder, and before it were seven torches aglow with fire, and before this, a sea of glass like crystal. I think what we see in this first section of the chapter is you see a picture of what ultimately glory is going to be like, what the throne of God is like. Now, consider the, the broader images that we see here. Lightning, thunder, fire. What does that remind you of? Lightning, thunder, fire. To me, these are all very powerful things, seemingly uncontrollable things. Look at the rest of the imagery. White linens, gold crowns, glass, crystals, jewels, emeralds. What do these remind you of? Pure things, good things. So in these two images, I think we see a contrast between power and purity. Power and purity. And I want to bring those two up from this portion of the chapter because I think it's really easy for us to conceptualize in our minds that God is just a bigger version of us. Well, he's just a much bigger Colton. He's much stronger than Colton. He has all the things that I've got, but he's perfected them. He knows all things. He's just the smartest guy there was. He's the tallest guy there ever was. He's the strongest, most powerful guy there ever was. I think even if we do it subconsciously, we think about God as if he's a bigger version than ourselves. If you've seen the, the Renaissance painting, The Creation of Adam by Michelangelo, you see Adam reclining in a seat, reaching out to God, and God is this big, strong, muscular white guy with a big, burly beard and a lot of gray hair, and he's reaching out to Adam to touch him. And I think in a lot of times when we think of God, we conceive of God, we think of something like that. Guy in the sky, beard, 
knows lots of stuff. And I think what we see in this passage today is that actually who God is is a lot more significant than just that. I think what we see here is that he's not like us, that he's completely different from us, that he is wholly other. Yes, he's smarter than you. Yes, he's bigger than you. But hear me, and I say this about myself too, there are people in this world who are smarter than you and bigger than you. And they're not God. They don't have a throne where they're seated and there's lightning and thunder under their control where there's fire and glass and emeralds that point to the purity of the person who sits on the throne. That's, that's not true of any person on earth. Our understanding of God and what he's like needs to grow. And here's why. Throughout the series this far, Brian and Nathan have asked the question in light of worship, in light of what worship is and who God is, they've asked the question, do we worship him rightly? Do we worship him rightly? And if not, if you feel stifled in your worship or if you come in and you feel stuffy throughout the week and you just can't really set your mind on holy things and you come in here and you just don't feel like you're into the song, I think part of the reason why our worship gets stifled isn't because you're not the worshiping type, but because we have a diminished view of who God is. And I hope this passage lifts our eyes to a bigger view of who God is. God is. So who is he? We could see throughout all of the scriptures, we could go a bunch of different places to see that God is a lot of things. He is wisdom. He is knowledge. He is love. Think of the, think of the omnis, right? We think of those three omnis, omnipotence, omniscience, and uh, omnipresence. God's all powerful. He's all knowing. He's ever present. But see, here's the thing. I think a lot of times this confuses us because we think, oh, well, I have the capacity for knowledge. I, can, I have the capacity for love, so I'm kind of like God in that way. But what's different about God is God doesn't just have the capacity to do those things. God just doesn't have the ability to be loving. God doesn't just have the ability to be justice. God doesn't just have the ability to know things. He is those things, the perfect embodiment of those things. Things. This is kind of hard to wrap our minds around, but this is what Exodus 3 means when Moses, or when God says to Moses, tell them, I am who I am. Go to them and say that the I am has sent you. This is what John 1, 4, 16 means when he says God is love. He is perfectly those things. He doesn't just have the capacity to do them, right? That's what it means when we say we're made in the image of God. What that means is, is we have the ability to do the things that God is like. We have the ability to show love to one another because God's love. We have the ability to pursue justice because God himself is justice. So when I say that God's not like us, that's what I mean, is that we're not perfectly anything, but God is. Acts 17, 28 says, in him we live and move and have our being because He's perfectly all of these things, so we can, we can live, we can love, we can show kindness, we can have knowledge, we can be in time, we can do all of these things because God has given his image to us and instilled in us an ability to be like him, but not him. Now, I want to pause here and make this caveat. How is it that I can say God is not like us, and he's not? Say God is not like us when Jesus came in human flesh. See, in the beginning when God created, the second person of what we just confessed a minute ago, the Trinity, 
the Son of God, wasn't in heaven as a human. That's something that God took on and put on when he stepped into creation. He took on human flesh when he came as a baby and was born of the Virgin Mary. That's something the second person of the Trinity did when he stepped into time. And so in the humanity of Jesus, we can see, yes, here's somebody who suffered in ways similar to how I suffered, who, who lives a life of trial in similar ways that I live a life full of trial. But unlike us, what the Son of God did in his humanity that we could never do was achieve perfection. See, what God did when he took on human flesh is he took something that was corruptible, our sin and our shame and the brokenness that comes with being a human and the tendency to worship things that aren't God that comes with being a human. He took that corruptibility and he pointed it to incorruptibility. He pointed it to heaven and he made human flesh perfect in his life so that we could in him one day in glory be glorified See, God's not like us. The humanity of Jesus might have skin and bones like we see him, but God is not like us. Jesus is both fully man and fully God. And what we say throughout other parts of Scripture is that God is spirit. God is just not a bigger version of us. He is much, much different than us. This throne room scene, I think, should lift our gaze from away, away from a God that looks like us, that we see as a big, tall man with a big beard, but to the one who is and is to come, who's the ancient of days, the one that has no beginning and no end. That's who we should fix our eyes on. Not a God who just, you know, is kind of treated like a genie in a bottle who you go to when you need issues or you got issues and you need help, so you rub on that prayer a little bit and hope that your problems are solved. Not just that. Of course we go to God in prayer. Of course we take our problems to him. But he is so much more than that. He's the creator, lightning, thunder, fire, crystals, emeralds, power, beauty, surround his throne, not for us to gawk at those things, but for us to see him, the one who controls those things, the one who has those things in his hands. So why do we worship God. What about God necessitates our worship is that he's not like us. He is much different than us, and that's to our benefit, that he's not like us. He's outside of time and space. He created all things, so we don't worship a fellow human in the sense that a human who's here on earth right now, but we worship a God who stepped into humanity to save us from our sins. Let's keep reading. Verses 4 6b through 8. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes, and all around and within, day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. What we see here, this is actually a recitation by these four living creatures of the seraphim song from Isaiah 6. In Isaiah 6, the song reads, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And here the creatures sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. What's amazing about this is these are places in Scripture, the only places in Scripture where any of God's characteristics, his attributes, what he's like, 
are repeated three times. We see God as love in John. We see his wisdom and power other places. This is the only time where one of his characteristics is repeated three times. Holy, holy, holy. Not once, not twice, but three times holy. We should pause. When the scriptures repeat itself, we should pause and think about that, right? It's something is being reiterated for us to remember. See, in this song, we see other characteristics of God demonstrated. We see his eternality, who was and is and is to come. He's always existed. We see his strength when it refers to him as the almighty, his power. We see those things in the song, but in the song, only one is repeated three times. Holy, holy, holy. God is utterly holy. What is what is holy? Jennifer gave a great analogy of it, talking about the purity of the water. God's holiness is the absolute moral purity of his entire being. It is perfection. It is beauty. In him, all things are made excellent. All things are made good. All things are holy. And we can see this in the life of Jesus. He lived a perfect life. We can see this in the Holy Spirit, in his right and good guiding of us in our daily lives for those who have him indwelling in us. His holiness pervades all of scripture and all of time and all of space. Even when we see in the Psalms that creation, not just humans, but all creation cries out the glory and the goodness of God. God's holiness demonstrates also the absolute distance between God and humanity. Because I think we all would recognize that humanity isn't perfect. That there is something in the world broken that we call sin that separates us from God. And the only way that we can be reunited with God is through his son, Jesus Christ. And why is this? It's sin. Sin is what separates us from God. I want to look at... so. I was writing that. There's just so much on this topic in the Bible. I want to briefly go to three places and show you where God's holiness relates to his worship in a really severe way. You don't have to turn there. We're just going to fly through these because I think I'm already running short on time. Leviticus 10, we see this on display. We see God's holiness in relation to his worship on display. In Leviticus 9, right after the Lord accepts Aaron's offering, Two of his sons in Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu, make an unauthorized offering to the Lord that the Lord had not commanded. And look at how verses one through, three, one through three read. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Nadab and Abihu made an affront of God's holiness and made an offering to God that was not authorized. And the Lord saw it fit to use them as an example to demonstrate his holiness and how beautiful he is and how he will not be trans. Their sin was an affront to the sanctity, the glory, and the holiness of God. Does God take his holiness seriously? I think so. 
We see it elsewhere in Numbers 16, a similar story where there rises up this man and his family, Korah and his sons. And this is what verses 1 through 3 read of Numbers 16. Now Korah, the son of Ezar, son of Koath, son of Levi, and Dathan, and Abiram, sons of Eliab, on the, and on the sons of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses with a number of people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. Listen to this. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far for all in the congregation are holy. Every one of them. And the Lord is among them. He's not separate from them. He's among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? That's what Korah said to Moses and Aaron. Why are you guys exalted? Why do you guys get to talk to God? We're all holy, just like the Lord. Challenged Moses, claiming to be holy. And in doing so, they challenged the Lord. And if you know this story, what happens next does not go well for Korah and his sons. The earth opens up, and all 500 of them are swallowed into the earth and killed. Just like Nadab and Abihu. They thought themselves holy, claimed to be holy like the Lord, and they paid the price of their lives for it. One more. Not in the Old Testament this time. New Testament. We don't only see this in the Old Testament. Recall the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Acts 5. The first part of the story reads this. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived, you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. He withheld something that was God's from God. He withheld something that was due to God and his people and it cost him the ultimate price. And his wife, Sapphira, would make the same decision. She would agree with what her husband had done. She told the apostle Peter, oh yeah, that's the right price. That's what we sold our land for. And the same feat that carried out Ananias carried out Sapphira because they lied not just to Peter and to the community, but to God. You think God takes his holiness seriously? You think God cares about how we conceive of what God has said in his word. Our sin just isn't against those who have sinned. Our sin isn't just against those who we've sinned against, like ourselves or others, but it's primarily against God. And this is what separates us from God. When the angels, when the uh, creatures and what we would see later in Revelation 5, the seraphim and the cherubim, when they sing God's praises of his holiness, that distances us, it puts distance between us and God. What we see in these three stories is how seriously God takes his worship because of his holiness. Nadab and Abihu and Korah and his sons all thought, oh, surely what God has said was an exaggeration. Surely I can approach God however I please. Surely how I posture myself before the Lord doesn't matter as long as I do it. And their arrogance cost them their lives. And in the story of Ananias and Sapphira, we see how disobedience in relation to specific expectations from God cost them their lives. And we could look 
Elsewhere throughout the scriptures, we could see the death of Achan for stealing items devoted to God. We could look at Uzzah who touched the ark as it was falling to the ground. All of these things in rejection of what God has said and commanded cost people their lives. Now, you might think this is extreme, and I really wrestled with whether or not I was going to include this in the sermon, but I think I'm going to. And if I've given this analogy here before, I apologize, but I want to give an analogy, give you an example of how to think about God's character, how to think about God's holiness. So if you were to leave First Baptist and you were to take a walk along Main Street and you were to walk past the benches that sit there along Main Street, as you're walking, if you were to see a person, a man, who had a cricket in his hands, you see a man who had a cricket in his hands, and you see that man about to pull the leg off of one of those crickets, what would your response be? You'd probably pick up your speed a little bit and like, this is weird. Why is this guy doing that? Restart the story. So you're walking down Main Street, and you see somebody sitting on the benches, and this time, he's got a frog in his hands, and he's about to pull one of the legs off the frog. You're probably thinking, what in the world is this? Is he like preparing lunch? Like what is happening here on Main Street? Start the story over again. You see the same thing, guy sitting on the bench, but this time instead of a frog, he's got a bird in his hands. It's a big bird. What would your reaction be? He's about to pull one of the feet off this bird. What in the world? Are you gonna like call the police at this point? Like there's a deranged man plucking legs off of things. Maybe you would at least be very concerned. Restart the scenario. You're walking down Main Street, See somebody on the bench, this time in his hands is a puppy. And he's about to pull one of the legs off the puppy. Now I think all of us who have any moral compass in this room would be like, we're stopping it. We're probably going to call the police. Like there is a man killing an animal here on Main Street. Restart the scenario one last time. You're walking down Main Street. Come to a guy at the park bench. And this time he has a child in his hands. And he's about to do serious harm to this child. Anyone in the room would move heck and high water to get in between that guy and that child to stop that child from being harmed. Anybody would. But you didn't do that for the cricket or the frog. I love frogs, my favorite animal. This analogy kills me every time. Why? See, it's not the action that is the primary problem in our sin. It's who it's against. If it's against a cricket, big who cares? If it's against a frog, a little bit more who cares? If it's against a bird, this is kind of strange. Against a puppy, that's man's best friend, what are you doing? If it's against a child, you deserve to be in prison for a long time. What about God? What about sin against a holy God who created all things and sustains all things by the word of his power? What about something that transgresses him? See, often when we think of sin, we think of it as being against somebody who's just a bigger version of us and not as the creator of the world, the sustainer of all things, the one who is love and justice himself. And I hope what we see in this throne room scene as these angels, as these creatures cry, holy, 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 is that we would feel the weight of God's holiness, and we would recognize that we aren't holy because what we see in the stories of Nadab and Abihu and all this is that 
We do not have any place before the throne of God on our own merit. We, in the story, we're not Moses and Aaron, we're Nadab and Abihu and Korah, and we're making all these mistakes before God. But praise be to God that through Jesus Christ, we can have access to God. That we can go before the white hot furnace that is his holiness and not be engulfed in flames because of Jesus. As the creatures cry, holy, 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 it is a recognition that God is holy and they are not. And what we see in these stories is that we aren't either. Only God is holy. He has perfected what we've wronged. He has maximized what we've minimized. And this is why we worship him. He is holy other. He is not like us. He is utterly holy. He is complete in his perfections. So let's look at the last three verses and see what the rest of Revelation 4, 9, 4, 9 through 11 has to say about God's otherness and his holiness. And whenever the living creature Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were Created. These creatures give glory, they give honor, they give thanks to God. And this is also the passage where I really think the rock band Casting Crowns got their name. It had to be, I don't know. Because the, those, those elders, they lay down and they cast the crowns before the, the throne. They say, worthy are you, Lord. Glory and honor and power are yours. All things exist and are created by your will. We see in this passage of Revelation is that worship is given to God not because of who he, of what he has done, not because in one singular sense, like what he's done in the world, like thank you for creating, thank you for sending his son, but worship is primarily given to God in this throne room scene because of who he is, because of his holiness, because He's not like the creatures who are worshiping. So let me ask you this. When you worship, how do you conceive of God? Do you think of him as just a bigger version of you, judging you for things you think you've done? Do you see him as somebody who's worthy of worship, or do you begrudgingly come through the doors and sit and read at home your Bible? Do you just begrudgingly do those things because you think you're supposed to do them? Or do you worship God because of who he is? Good and glorious and majesty and powerful and holy. Those are the things about God that necessitate his worship. And so I do think that in this scene, we see that God is completely other and that he's utterly holy. There's an old song it's a really, really old song, actually. Um, it was written sometime like 1,400 years ago. It was originally as like a chant that they would like chant during um, like services and monasteries. But it's been translated and paraphrased and put into song form. And I'm really glad we didn't sing it this morning so that I get a chance to tell you about it. 
It's really short, so it'd be kind of hard to do in a survey. Anyway. Uh, but the imagery in the song comes from Revelation 5, not necessarily Revelation 4, but I think that the sense of the song is pertinent for us today, and it's called, Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence. It has four short parts, and I want to read them to you. It says, Let all mortal flesh keep silence, and with fear and trembling stand. Ponder nothing earthly-minded, for with blessing is his hand. Christ our God to earth descendeth, our full homage to demand. King of kings, yet born of Mary, as of old on earth he stood. Lord of lords, in human vesture, in the body and the blood, he will give to all the faithful his own self for heavenly food. Rank on rank the host of heaven, spread its vanguard on the way, as the light of light descendeth from the realms of endless day, that the powers of hell may vanish as the darkness clears away. Last verse. At his feet, the six-winged seraph, Cherubim with sleepless eye, veiled their faces to his presence, as with ceaseless voice they cry, Alleluia, 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 Lord most high. What I think we see in the song and what I love about this song and a lot of hymns, they point us Godward in our worship. They don't point us to the things that God can do for us or the things that we might be able to obtain if we follow the Lord. But they point us to God himself. So my question for us today, as we come to the conclusion of our time together, is in your worship of God, in your worship of who God is, are you looking Godward at the God who is not like us, and at the God who is utterly holy? Or are you looking inward for your own preferences? for the own things in your heart that you would like to see in worship? Are we looking Godward or are we looking inward? All these things we've heard today, one of the things that I love about thinking about God in this way and thinking about God's holiness is that as we think about God in this way, all of the things we've said, God's complete otherness, his holiness, his magnitude, his power, his love, all of those things are true of Jesus Christ. All of those things are true of the Son of God. And my question is this, do you worship him as such? Do you worship him appropriately? Or are you like Nadab and Abihu and Korah and all these, all these guys who want to worship God on your own terms, right in front of who he is and what he's like? Or, or do you worship him rightly? The band's going to come, and I want to conclude uh, with some final thoughts. Throughout this series, you've been thinking about what worship's like and who we worship. And now today we've thought a bit about, kind of complicatedly, why we worship. And I hope that what we've seen this morning is that we worship, like what about God necessitates worship? I hope what we've seen is that he is so much different. He's not a creature like I am. He's not one who was created like I am. He's not one who, like me, has imperfections. He's not one who, like me, has done wrong things, but that he is completely different and perfect and holy. And so my question today, my encouragement to you today, would be as the band sings one final song, that if you feel stifled in your worship, 
if you feel like your worship has been kind of stagnant and that you really haven't been giving all of your heart and mind and honor to God in your worship, my encouragement to you would be to point your eyes Godward. Think about the ways in which God's not like you. Think about the ways in which God's not like me. Think about his holiness. See him for who he is. Get a bigger vision for who God is. And hopefully, your worship won't be stifled. Hopefully, you'll get that bigger vision and you'll see God for who he really is. And in no place do we see that more perfectly than, his, than in his son, Jesus Christ. So today's your first time here today. This is the first time you've ever heard about Jesus or the first time you've ever heard this God being talked about in this way. My encouragement would be, get to know him. Get to know him and see him for who he really is and have your eyes and your heart open to worship. If you haven't gotten to know him and you'd like to do that today, come forward. There will be people here to pray with you as you think through those things. So band, I'm gonna pray and then lead us in worship again. God, we love you. We thank you so much for the truths that we see in your word. I pray that as we conclude our time in service here today, that the complicated things we talked about, you would just clear it up in the minds and hearts of people so that we could see you more clearly. That's our hope, is that as we read your word, as we sing songs about you, as we live our lives, we would see you clearly for who you are, and not a human-created version of you, but who you truly are. Not who we want you to be, but who you are. Not who we make you out to be, but who you are. I pray that we would worship you rightly. And I pray that this morning we would have seen you clearly in your otherness and in your holiness. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Number 215 in your hymnals, if you would like to look at it there, majesty.